Well, we're going through the book of Acts, which brings us back to the start of the church or basic Christianity as we're reminded how the church started and what Christians are supposed to be all about. In other words, we have a chance to rediscover Christianity and to peel off some of the confusing human layers of traditions and agendas and personal pet peeves and priorities that have done nothing but mask or hide the simple life-changing message of the gospel that's found in the person of Jesus Christ alone. And so today and next Sunday, two Sundays, we're going to dig into Acts chapter 17, which is probably my all-time favorite chapter in the book of Acts. Because in this chapter, you can see Paul's heart and you can see Paul's ability to connect with his culture and to communicate the gospel with courage and compassion. Turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and you follow along as I begin reading in verse 15. Acts 17, beginning in verse 15. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked Within him, when he saw that the city was given over to idols, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them. Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus or Mars Hill saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak for you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this ascription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all life, breath, and all things, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times 
and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that he might that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and, say it, believed Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So what can we learn here from Paul that could help us to engage people today and to talk with people today? Well, here's the first thing I want you to see. Number one, you will need a love For unbelievers that is filled with both courage and compassion. That's what Paul had. And I love the context for how Dr. Luke sets it all up. Remember, Dr. Luke is traveling with Paul and he's recording these things. I love how Dr. Luke sets this up for us in verse 16. You see, Paul is well into his second missionary journey now. So he's been doing this for a while into his second missionary journey, and he's on a stopover in Athens where he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to catch up because he left them behind in Berea. And so you can almost imagine Paul with time on his hands to kill, like any good tourist, just wandering around this magnificent city of Athens that was known for its history and philosophy and academics and culture and art and architecture and medicine. See, Athens was a hub for intellectual conversations and cutting-edge ideas, as well as embracing a plethora of gods or spiritual paths that you could choose to explore in your own journey of faith. So picture a city like Chicago or New York that's filled with the sights and sounds and smells of multiple cultures and ideologies, all mixed together with a big dose of religion and spirituality thrown in. You could find it all in Athens. And so, in the midst of crowds and noise, And the sensory overload of the moment. What emotion do you think Paul was moved by the most? As he walked through 
that city and took it all in. We don't have to guess because Dr. Luke tells us in verse 16, look at it again. Now, while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was, say it, provoked, provoked within him. Now, be careful right here. Don't make the mistake of assuming this word provoked is synonymous with raw, just raw rage against sin. Because it's not. It's the Greek word paroxino, from which we get our English word paroxysm. That refers to a sudden outburst of emotion. It was a medical term also. Or a seizure or spasm that comes upon you suddenly. Something you're gripped by. It's actually a word that's hard to translate into English because it's describing a complex emotion rather than a simple one. In fact, it's a word that means to be gripped by strong, contradictory feelings. In other words, as Paul walked through that city and saw everything that was going on and everything that the people were caught up in, he was moved with strong, contradictory Feelings. So here's the question. What were those strong, contradictory feelings that gripped him as he took it all in? Indignation and compassion. Indignation and compassion. Oh, listen to me. We desperately need more Christians today to have an Apostle Paul Athens moment in their hearts. Oh yes, it's appropriate, most appropriate to have a sense of righteous indignation for the glory and holiness of our God who is so belittled in our culture today. But you should have an equally strong wave of compassion that grips you as you realize that these people who ignore and sin against a holy God are blind and dead and trapped in sin just like you were before God saved you and set you free. That was you. That was me. Oh, listen to me. You are not where you are today. And I am not where I am today. Because we're better than anyone else. If you're a Christian here today, you are here by the mercy of God who sought you and found you and delivered you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. If God had not saved you, you would still be doing what they do, thinking what they think and wanting what they want. You are here and I am here by the mercy of almighty God. forget that. We get scared 
And we see what they're doing. But oh, we need indignation and, say it, compassion. 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 The commentator John Stott says, quote, The reason we don't speak the way Paul speaks is because we don't see what Paul sees. And the reason we don't see what Paul sees is because we don't feel what Paul feels. Paul saw more than just rebels and God despisers because Paul felt more than just raw rage against sin. He felt indignation for the glory and holiness of a good God and he felt compassion for those who were caught up in it, trapped in it. Listen to me, one of the biggest problems I think today with Christians is that they have spun off into two unbiblical and unbalanced camps who no longer hold to the biblical tension of a complex emotion instead of a simple one of indignation over sin and compassion for sinners caught up in it. Instead, we've got a camp of angry Christians over here, right? Angry Christians who are indignant over sin and disgusted by it. And so they continually rail against and condemn everyone around them that's caught up in it, pointing it out and shouting. And then we've got a camp of compassionate Christians over here who are ready to accept people just as they are. But sadly, think the most loving thing to do is to leave them as they are. And so they work hard to excuse sin by trying to reinterpret the scriptures, especially on sins like sexual sins, so that we no longer need to call anybody to repent of anything. Just love them and maybe even affirm them as they are. There's a little bit of truth in both camps, you guys. That's the problem. Should we hold on to truth, the truth of what God says? Should we feel indignant for the glory and holiness of our good God who is despised and belittled? Should we be compassionate for lost sinners? Should we love them as they are? But we're supposed to be right here. Paul did not find himself in either of these extreme camps. He held he held to the biblical tension of a complex emotion of indignation and compassion. Here's why this matters. Here's why you should not be guilty of saying, well, here's how I hear it. Well, I'm a truth guy. I'm a truth guy, so I tell it like it is. And you rail against sin. I'm a compassionate guy. And so I just love them and affirm them. Listen to me. If you're not filled with indignation you won't have the courage to speak up and to stand for truth. But if you're not filled with compassion, you won't have the love and gentleness that Paul had as he spoke truth. Because God's word tells us to speak the truth in, say it again, 
Oh, hold on to truth, you guys. We're the church that still believes the Bible. How much of it? Even while the culture says, surely you can't believe that anymore. Surely not, surely not, surely not. Yes, we're that place. Yes. But folks, we're also that place where he just, the scriptures just drive it into us. Love. You'll be known by your love starting for each other and then love for unbelievers who rail against you and maybe persecute you, maybe blaspheme or maybe, but you love them. You love them. You love them. Truth and love. I hope you realize just railing against people and screaming at them about their sin does not bring people to Christ. It hardens them. Whenever I'm at some big event and I see some guy, it's usually a guy with some megaphone and some little van that says turn or burn, screaming at people as they enter Paul Brown Stadium or whatever it is, I just shudder. You're not helping us. Just screaming and condemning and railing again. Now, God's a good God and he uses us so in spite of ourselves. I'm sure God has used that to reach some people. But that doesn't change the fact that's not our marching orders. Hear me. That's not our marching orders. That's not how Jesus. See, set aside Paul for a minute. Never mind Paul. We shouldn't be doing it that way because Jesus did not do it that way. Nine times in the Gospels, nine times in the Gospels, we're told that Jesus, as he looked out on the multitudes, now you think you're disgusted? He knew more than you could ever know. He could see the hearts of every person. Every time he spoke to a crowd, he knew exactly what everyone had been thinking and doing. That would be repulsive, would it not? And overwhelming. And yet, it says nine times when he looked out on the multitudes, he was moved with, say it, compassion. Oh my goodness. Matthew 9, 36 is just one of the nine examples. But when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion Because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. If you're going to reach people today, you will need a heart of compassion for lost people. Remembering where you would be apart from the grace and mercy of God. But you do need to be willing to speak. 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 So that people can know who this God is that we're talking about. Compassion alone is not enough. Speak. In other words, point number two, you'll need to explain what sets the God of Christianity apart from all other gods. Listen to me, so often when people say to you, they say they don't believe in God. You could say back. I bet I don't believe in the God that you don't believe in. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. Right? Don't don't assume you're both talking about the same thing. Often when they begin to talk, you'll find yourself saying, I don't believe in that God either. So often people are talking about a God who we're not talking about. And it's the same thing that Paul faced in Athens. That city wasn't full of atheists. Never mind what the media tries to lead you to believe because we're created in the image of God 
People will be hungry for something more than here and will be interested in spirituality as long as there are people. Will they get off track and go to the wrong places of spirituality? Absolutely. But this whole notion that people are satisfied with materialism and naturalism and right here, right now is baloney. They will never be satisfied with it because he's put eternity in our hearts. We're created in his image and every human being knows there's more, there's more, there's more. There's got to be more. The city was not filled with atheists. It was filled with multiple gods and paths of spirituality to choose from. And so Paul actually notes the altar to the unknown God and uses that as a connecting point and a launch pad for doing some basic theology 101 about God. That's really what he's doing. Verses 24 to 31 is his sermon or his message. And he's giving them an overview Of the one true living God who created everything, sustains everything, sovereignly rules over everything and needs nothing from anyone in it yet is a personal God who you can speak to on personal terms because he calls you by name. And draws near. In other words, get this. Paul did not just hold to a biblical tension on his emotions, indignation, and compassion. He held to a biblical tension on who God is. Transcendent, high, and lifted up. Other, not like us. And eminence, right here and near to us. It's not either or, it's Paul shows them a God who's big enough to be worthy of your worship and big enough for your trust. He shows them a God that's big enough to be worthy of your worship and your trust. That's where he starts in verse 24. Look at what he says in verse 24. God who made the world and everything in it Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He's giving them a God who's bigger than any God they've ever imagined because they're gods. Their gods were all intertwined with creation and caught up in it instead of sovereignly ruling over it. And so this God who creates and sustains and rules over it is not a God they were familiar with at all. They were accustomed to the Greek gods who were largely just projections of themselves. If you know anything about the Greek gods, they were all all caught up in petty feuds with each other and, and ready to react in selfish anger to anyone who got in their way. So these gods were to be feared, no doubt but you wouldn't trust them or find in them anything worthy of worship. They were too much like us. And so Paul lifts up the transcendence of the one true living God 
who sustains our universe and exists apart from it while still caring about it deeply. How do we know that? Because he took on flesh and stepped into our world to bring this message that we're still trying to take today to others. In it, with us, in it, with us. And that's where he goes next. He goes on to tell them about a God who is near to each one of us and personally involved in all our ways. It's what he's doing at the end of verse 27 and on into 28. Look at what he says. He is not far. He is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Paul wants them to know that this true God, who is bigger and higher and more transcendent than you have ever imagined, is also more intimate and imminent and personal than you could have ever hoped for. Both truths, my friends, are essential if you're going to worship and trust Him. High and lifted up, here and near. High and lifted up, here and near. But sadly, so many Christians in our day have come untethered from the transcendence of God. High and lifted up, other, holy, glorious. And so it's left them with a God that's very much like the Greek gods. Little more than a projection of ourselves. And while they would never say it out loud, I've never heard any Christian say it out loud. Their behavior, their reaction to life's troubles and trials reveals their theology that really their theology says, I believe in God and trust God as long as he is doing what I think he should do and on the timetable that I think he should do it in. But if anything happens to me or the people I love most that I do not understand, that does not make sense to me, that I can't grasp and explain, then I'm either mad at God or done with God. Now stay with me, which I hope you realize reveals you never were trusting in God. You were trusting in you and your thoughts and your ways and your plans and your wisdom, which is why you stay so anxious and fearful and unhappy so much of the time. Because you don't trust God. And if you don't trust God, you can't rest in God. Which is why God says to us in Psalm 46.10. This is bonus. It's not in your outline. You might want to write it down. Psalm 46.10. Be, say it, still. The Hebrew verb actually means cease striving. And know that I am, say it. 
You cannot strive with God and rest in God at the same time. Those two activities and postures are mutually exclusive. So you decide the amount of peace or rest you will experience in this world. Elizabeth Elliot is on my short list, along with John Piper and others, of people who have influenced and shaped me more than anyone else through their writing and speaking. By God's grace, I've written every person who has influenced me the most before they died. And many of them wrote me back. She's one of them. I've got her note on my desk. If you don't know that name, let me help you a minute. Elizabeth was married to Jim Elliott, one of the five missionaries speared to death by Alka Indians in the rainforest as they tried to make contact with them to bring them the gospel. And not only was Elizabeth left with a three-year-old, she went back to the jungle with her daughter as a single missionary. And then in the final decades of her life, she spent those final decades speaking to thousands of people about a God who is worthy of our worship and a God you can trust. Now, does that seem odd? I'm afraid for a lot of Christians today, it does. Why would you trust him if something bad happened to you? Oh, you can't trust him then. The theme of her speaking and writing the rest of her life was God as a sovereign God who's worthy of your worship and a God you can trust in the midst of suffering you do not understand. Folks, it's not just Elizabeth Elliot and her speaking in her books. We have an entire book of the Bible that addresses this. What book is it? And the reason it's long is because this is a hard issue. It's 42 chapters long because you cannot capture this on a postcard or in a tweet. It's long. It's wandering. It's confusing. Job has a good day, has a bad day, says something right, says something wrong. God knew we would struggle with this. Is he worthy of worship and can you trust him when what's happening to you and around you makes no sense? And Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him and worship. In fact, when news came to him of all the calamity that was breaking loose in his world, he tore his robe fell to the ground, and today it would say, and screamed and went crazy, curled up in a ball, worship and worship, and said, naked I came from my womb, the womb naked I shall return. The Lord gives and the Lord, blessed be the name of the Lord. In 1976, just one example of Elizabeth Elliot and her ministry, what she was doing. In 1976, at a conference filled with thousands of people, 
She talked about that night in the jungle when five young missionaries and their young wives gathered together and sang with great gusto the hymn, We Rest on Thee, Our Shield and Our Defender. And the next morning, those five young men went out into the rainforest, contacted the Alka Indians, and were all speared to death. Their bodies were all found floating in the river, washed up against the beach with spears in them. You can find photos of that. And when she said that, the crowd grew awkwardly quiet, just like it did here. And she said, they were speared to death in the midst of obeying God. What does that do to your faith? Does it demolish it? And then she answered the question and said, a faith that disintegrates is a faith that was not resting in God himself. You were believing in something less than the ultimate. You were believing in your own neat little program of how things are supposed to work. It's just a projection of yourself. And she went on to say, and I quote, God is God. And if he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. And I will find rest nowhere but in his will. That rest is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. And then she closed by quoting Evelyn Underhill. If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. What about you? Do you have a God who's big enough to be worshipped and big enough to be trusted when you don't understand what he is doing in your life or in those that you love and things all around you, listen to me, this is not a theological issue that would be just wonderful to debate and sit around and discuss. There are implications to this. Until you have a God who's big enough to be trusted and worshiped, even when you don't understand what's going on in your life, you will not have Rest in this world. Oh, you can have a Christian version of churning just like the rest of the world. But you will not have rest until you trust in a sovereign God who is bigger than a projection of you and your thoughts and your plans. Paul proclaimed a transcendent God who's high and lifted up and a God who's with us here, near, should be worshipped, can be trusted, can be trusted, 
can be trusted. Those of you who are mad at God or done with God, when you don't understand what he's doing, don't realize you're demanding a God that's just like you, that's no bigger than you. He would have no ability to do things greater than you. You've got a Greek God. Come back to the biblical one true living God. Does it leave you with unanswered questions? Absolutely. Will it give you rest? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Some of you think until your questions are answered, until you can connect all the dots, until you get a memo or an email or a tweet from him or a vision in the omelet of what's going on, then you can't trust and you can't rest and you're just going to keep churning. Well, you would churn your way to the end. Worship him. Trust him. He is worthy. You say, but how do I know he loves me? How do I know he's good? Folks, the mistake that Christians make is they want to decide what they think about God based on now and circumstances that are immediate. The scriptures always point us back for answering that question. He who did not spare his own son, Romans 8, 32, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? God is for us and we know it because what he did for us that solved our biggest problem. As tragic as it is, the death of a husband, cancer, the death of a child, financial calamity, on and on we could go, are not your biggest problems. Those are temporal, time-bound problems. You had an eternal problem that was going to land you in an eternal hell. But God gave his son, gave his son, gave his son. You want to know if God loves you or is good? You look back to Calvary. Oh, Yes, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But notice what else Paul says about the true God that's unlike any other God. He tells them that God doesn't need us to do anything for him. It's what he's driving home to them in verse 25 when he says, nor is he served by human hands. As if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all life, breath, and everything else. God doesn't need. Instead, he gives. And that is so unlike anyone else we know in this world. Even people that love you. Everyone else wants something from us, needs something from us, expects something of us, but not God. So why is Paul pushing this? Well, he's pushing this because they suffered with the same problem that we still do today. They thought that God wants us to do something for him so that he can be pleased with us. It's just ingrained in human name, what do I need to do? What do I need to do so that God would be pleased with me? How, how can I earn his favor? How can I be in right standing with him? They thought you've got to offer him something so that you can earn his love and appease his anger. And so Paul shatters that thinking 
by saying, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything from us because he gives to all men life and breath and everything else. And here's what's, here's what's going on. That message that God doesn't need anything from us but gives to us is the best news and the worst news you could ever hear. Depending on what you think about yourself and what you think you can do for God. If you're here and you are self-righteous, feeling morally superior to other people, you probably never said it out loud, but you think it regularly. Glad I'm not like them. So glad I've never done that. So glad, so glad, so glad. If you're here and you're self-righteous, feeling morally superior to other people, thinking you have something to offer God that other people can't, then this is terrible news for you, my friend, because this cuts the feet out from underneath the lie that you can do anything for God or offer anything to God that would change your standing with God. But if you're here and you know that you are a hopeless, helpless sinner who can offer nothing to God, but desperately need the mercy of God to be poured out on you, then this is the best news you could ever hear. God doesn't need you to do anything for him. It's what God has done for you. But you have to come to the end of yourself and see yourself as bad as he sees you. To humble yourself and say, oh God, have. What's the operative word? Mercy. On who? All those bad people? On a sinner. Folks, that's what sets Christianity apart from and makes it distinct from every other religion, is just a different list of what you need to do. Only Christianity is a glorious proclamation. You think about it. The gospel is a proclamation. It's good news. It's heralding not what needs to be done, but what has been done. We're heralding what has been done. It's news. It's news. It's not a program and a plan and steps. It's news of what God has done in his son for us that we could never do for ourselves. That is so different than Islam and Hinduism and Judaism. So as a close, I want to say something to two different groups of people that are sitting here. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. I am so glad you're here. So glad you're here. But maybe one of the reasons you're not a Christian, this was not totally new to you. You've heard much of this. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you even had a Christian home you were in. But maybe one of the reasons you'd say you're not a Christian is because you've been so turned off by a Christian or some Christians who were harsh and arrogant and condemning in how they talked to you. It was filled with disdain and disgust. 
There was no compassion. If that is you, then please understand that Christian or those Christians did not represent the heart of our Savior, Jesus. And Jesus is perfect, but his followers are not. And so I trust they will continue to grow more, grow more to have the heart of their Savior as they walk with their Savior. But oh, listen to me. Listen to me right now. Look at me. Don't let their misrepresentation of Jesus turn you away from Jesus. He said, whosoever will may come, come, come. He said, whoever is heavy laden, burdened, weary, come to me, come to me. All, all as you are. And I will give you rest. Rest. Don't turn away from Jesus. Don't turn away from Jesus. But if you're here and you claim to be a Christian... I want to leave you with a thought. I want you to consider whether or not you have his heart for lost people. Are you filled with a complex emotion that often feels like contradictory feelings, indignation, and compassion? Ask God to help you see. Psalm 139, 23, 24 is a great prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Are you too much over here? It's all about love. Just accept them. Don't speak truth. Don't say anything. Don't rock the boat. Or is it too much over here? I'm a truth giver. Say, God, give me the heart of Jesus and the heart of the Apostle Paul that was filled with indignation and, say it, compassion. Because I find that when you have this and this, and trust me, Please know I don't do this perfectly. I'm, I'm, I'm bringing you something that I have to work at and ask God to help me. I am regularly shocked by my own thoughts in my heart. I'll be on the treadmill at LA Fitness and I find myself being repulsed or judging someone or thinking terrible thoughts and I immediately have to repent. So I hope that makes you feel better. I don't walk around like the second Jesus just doing this perfectly. But I want to do it well. I want to form the habit. And one of the best ways to do that is I have to never lose sight of what a wretched sinner I am. But folks, some Christians don't even have it on the radar. They think it's most appropriate to just be angry. It's not. And very often that anger I find is driven by fear. Perfect love cast out. We've got too many Christians who are afraid and it makes you run from lost people and rail against lost people. When you love lost people, you'll move towards them. Towards them. Not away from them. Towards them. In the marketplace. Notice Paul was in the marketplace, right where people were. On that campus, in that gym, in that neighborhood. Ask God to give you his heart for lost people. He loves to answer that prayer. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Oh, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for all that we learn that we would not understand without your word. 
Thank you for your commitment to continue to change us. We're not finished. We're not there yet. We haven't arrived. And it's not just information that year after year after year after year we want to know more Bible. No, year after year after year we want to be more like Jesus. Change us so that you can use us in this broken, dark, confused world. May we be your people through whom you are accomplishing your purposes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.